Welcome to Sunday Unschooled, a podcast where we address questions and discuss topics you may not hear in church. Our goal is not to bash a religion, denomination, church, or pastor, but to help educate people no matter where you are in your faith journey. We are your hosts, Elena and Eric. We'll be the first to admit we definitely don't know it all, but we truly believe the answers are found in the Bible. What's up, everybody? Happy Sunday. We hope that y'all have had a great week. We had a great week. Eric and I both had birthdays. Yes. Happy birthday to us. Oh, yeah. We kind of take advantage of August. We kind of have a month-long celebration for us because we can. Yes, we sure can. um, We hope y'all had a great week, and we just want to welcome you to episode 7 of Sunday Unschooled. We have a great episode in store for us today. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. And just so you know and everybody knows, these first 8 to 10 episodes that we're doing are best understood in order. So if this is your first time joining us, we're so glad you're here. We would love for you to hop off this episode and go all the way back to episode one and catch up and then join us right back here when you're ready. I promise it will make much more sense if you do that. Um, And maybe you've missed a week here or there. That's totally fine. That's awesome. That's why we went to podcast format rather than Zoom as we were doing. Because if you missed a week, just go back and listen. It will make much more sense because the topic we have today is awesome. So really quick, if you have joined us for all six episodes prior to this one, I want to do a quick recap because we have been in the topic of knowing our enemies. And we've done, what is it, three or four episodes on that. And so just to kind of recap all of that, Our first enemy that we looked at was Genesis 3, the original rebel. We know him as Satan, Lucifer. We know now who he is, what happened, what his plan is. The second set of rebels were found in Genesis chapter 6. And that was when the 200 watcher angels came down. They took women, human women as their wives, and they created these hybrid children, um, half angel, half human abominations. So those 200 angels are actually locked away. The Bible tells us that. But their children, the Nephilim or the giants, as the Bible tells us, that's actually why God sent the flood. There were no humans left on the earth except for Noah and his family. So the Nephilim, these hybrid angel-human Um, abominations are now spirits that we know as demons. Then there's a whole other set of rebels, um, another enemy of God that we looked at in Genesis chapter 11, and that was going over the story of Babel. And that is what we now know as the gods of the nations. And so hopefully all of that 
made sense to you. If you need to go back and listen to some episodes, that's totally cool. We're actually going to do a question and answer episode very soon. So if you have questions that you would like for us to address on an episode, if you could either email us at sundayunschooled at gmail.com or we actually have an Instagram account with Sunday Unschooled. So find us on Instagram, um, follow us, and you can private message us or um, make a comment on there's a big question mark post and you can make a comment there. But we would love to go over some of the questions that you may have up until this point. But enough of me talking, let's jump into today's episode because it is going to be awesome. So guys, cosmic geography, what is it? And really what it is, it is the turf war between the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and the gods of the nations, these supernatural rebels that Elena talked about here in her talk. And it's also about sacred space, and it's about land under dominion. What geographical lands are under whose dominion? Under God or under these supernatural gods, these false gods, as some people would call them? Uh, We see this unfold in Deuteronomy 32. God punishes mankind. This is what happened at Babel, and he has... He, he divides them, he separates them, he gives them different languages, and he assigns each and every one of these nations, which was about 70 of them, to members of his heavenly family, of his heavenly host. These are supernatural beings that God says, hey, I want you guys to be placeholders, to be governors over the nations of mankind. And I want you to teach them how to love me, how to worship me, uh, because you guys are a great example of that. You guys know what it is to worship me. You guys know what it li- what it is to be around me. So I want you to govern them, teach them, guide them. But unfortunately, what happens is that these guys rebel against God. After God disinherits humanity, he still loves humanity, but disinherits them and puts them under the governance of these supernatural beings. They rebel and they become corrupt and they turn their populations against God and turn the worship that should go back to God to themselves. And now they extract worship from humanity. They ask for sacrifices. They ask for the building of statues and images of themselves and of different beings that represent them. And unfortunately, the choice that they make creates these gods of the nations. All of these gods you've ever heard of, Osiris, Zeus, Jupiter, Saturn, all of the gods you've ever heard of, all of these pantheons of gods come from these guys, from these real supernatural beings that rebelled against God. But the great thing is that God chooses one man, this is Abraham, to birth a child, to create descendants 
that will be his allotted inheritance, as Deuteronomy 32 tells us. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. And these descendants of Abraham will become God's human ambassadors here on earth. And they will become the ambassadors to the other nations of the world that are under the dominion and authority of rebel supernatural beings. And what we're going to see unfold is God going up against these guys, going up against these gods and their priests and their followers and loyal subjects. And God's going to use the people of Israel and other unique examples on how to show these guys up, how to prove to all of humanity and to these supernatural beings that God is the God of all gods and that everything is under his control and under his sovereignty. So let's jump into the Bible and we're going to look at some examples of this turf war as it unfolds. So before we go into a couple of examples, we really want to reference this idea of supernatural beings ruling over nations. And we see a wonderful example of this in Daniel 10, 13 and 20 and 21. Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and verses 20 and 21. And Elaine is going to read that for us. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. What's interesting here, when I, what I want to draw your attention to is the language that Daniel is using. He's using rulership language. The, the word prince, it means rulership. And he's talking about the prince of Persia. And then later on in verses 20 and 21, the the angel that comes to Daniel mentions the prince of Greece. Now, he is not talking about human princes. Why? Because this angel tells Daniel that it, it, took, them, it took him 21 days to fight off this prince of Persia. There is no way that is a human being. No human being could ever, ever withstand being even in the presence of an angel. Every time you see examples of angels appearing to humans, you know, they fall on their face. In the case of Jacob, he, the guy ends up with a, with a limp hip the rest of his life. So it's not an easy thing to contend with an angel. But whatever this being is, it's definitely at his level. They're definitely equals because it took him three weeks just to get past this guy. And this is the prince of Persia. Daniel is describing one of these supernatural rebel beings that currently has authority and dominion over one of the nations, in this case, Persia. And later on, the angel talks about that the prince of Greece will come, again, describing another supernatural being that is under the control and authority of, the, of Greece. The nation of Greece is under his authority 
and control. And then, of course, the angel man- mentions Michael. And he says, Michael, which is your prince. In other words, Michael is referenced in the Bible as one of the good guys. And clearly, it makes sense that he would be on the side of Israel. On Jacob, God's allotted inheritance. So we see Daniel really telling us, hey, guys, there are good guys and there are bad guys. There are guys that are on God's side and there are God and there are guys that are not on God's side that are complete rebels toward him. And it's not just Satan. It's not just the devil as most of us would call him. There are other guys on his team. And these are the guys that have authority and dominion over the nations. The next thing we want to do is we want to look at an example of how God proves his power over different gods and and takes control over authority that originally was under the dominion of another supernatural being. And Elena is going to read 1 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 for us. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Oh my gosh, I love this scripture. It reminds me of the movie, um, what is it? The Monty Python, Monty Python of Holy Grail. When the guy's like, it's a mere flesh wound. It totally <laughs> reminds me of that. This I love this scripture. And uh, this scripture is also awesome because it really gives us a real great illustration of God going up against these guys. And we have the Ark of the Covenant, which houses the presence of God. And then the statue of Dagon, which was the chief god of the Philistines, or one of the chief gods of the Philistines. And again, Dagon is a representation of one of these supernatural rebels, the gods of the nations, one of the guys that rebelled against God that was supposed to govern over the nation of the Philistines. But again, with his comrades, he turned and rebelled against God. And we see what happens here. It's really, really cool. They take the Ark of the Covenant, they put it in the temple of Dagon, smack in the middle of Dagon's territory, and they leave. They come back later, and what's happening? The statue of Dagon is just lying flat on its face. So they pick, uh, they pick it right back up and think, okay, that was a little weird, but let's move forward. They put it up, they leave. They come back again, and what happens? Now it's the next level. Now just the trunk 
of Dagon is left. Literally, he's been reduced to a stump. His arms are gone. His legs are gone. His head has been cut off. And, and they realize that it is the presence of the Ark of the Covenant that is causing this. And it literally freaks them out. Because they're realizing, oh my goodness, the God of the Israelites that is housed within this thing, this the presence of this, of this God is housed within this ark, has now completely owned our God. And what, what does the scripture say? That to this day, the priests of Dagon do not walk on the threshold of Dagon. And it's interesting to picture this because these guys are so used to walking straight to the statue of Dagon and bowing to him and praying to him. But once the ark is there and God literally flexes his muscle and says, hey, I created you, Dagon, and you rebelled against me. By the way, just to give you a reminder, everything in the universe belongs to me. I merely made you a placeholder, a temporary authority over the, the nation. But not anymore. I am here. And I will take control of this turf because it belongs to me anyway. What's Dagon going to do? Nothing. He just has to be quiet and fall in line. And these priests sort of tippy-toe around. I can imagine this, Elena. They, they tippy-toe around that, that one spot where God's presence took out Dagon and it's been quarantined off. It's been taped off and they have to walk around to give their worship and their offerings to Dagon because they know if they set foot anywhere in that territory, it's lights out because that particular spot is now under the control and dominion of the God of Israel, of Yahweh, the God of all gods. So awesome. I love that. And the next story we're going to look at is a great story. It's one of my favorites. And it's found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. But before Elena reads it, I'm just going to kind of give you a, an illustration of what's going on here. Uh, some of you that may know the Bible, you probably know this story. But I want to break it down for you. So this is the story of Naaman. Naaman is a Syrian general. And the guy is just struck down with leprosy. Feel bad for the guy. He is just not doing well. Leprosy is a really, really bad deal. It's a raw deal, especially in ancient times. And he has leprosy, and he's tried to find different ways to be cured, and he can't find it. He's tried everything he can. Nothing's worked. And there's one. he has this little Israel slave girl. And she basically says, hey, Naaman, you might want to go see Elisha in Israel. He might be able to help you. And Naaman sort of ignores her. And Naaman's servants come and say, hey, you know what? Let's give it a shot. You've already tried everything. Might as well try this. So they convince them, convince him, excuse me. And they all travel to Israel where Naaman arrives where Elisha lives. And Elisha, interestingly enough, does not come out to greet him. He actually sends a servant 
out to greet Naaman. And when the servant comes out to greet him, Naaman is actually insulted. Because he's thinking, wait, how dare he? How dare he not come out and see me? Does he know who I am? I'm a pretty big deal. I'm a big shot. And this guy is not willing to come and even say hello to me. And the servant says, hey, you know, Elisha actually knows why you're here. So he's, he says that he wants you to go to the, Georgian, to the Jordan River, dip yourself seven times, and you'll be healed. And when Naaman hears this, he becomes insulted again. He says, what in the world? First, he doesn't come out to greet me. Second, he sends a servant to tell me what to do. And third, he sends me to this nasty, brown, ugly little river to, to bathe in? Come on, I've got better rivers in Syria. Why doesn't he ask me to go there and, and dip myself in one of those beautiful, clean rivers? Why this nasty Jordan River? So he, he doesn't agree at first. And of course, his servants come to him and say, look, just do it. If he would have asked you to do something crazy, you would probably would have done it. So just try it out. So they convince him and he goes to the river, dips himself seven times, and he becomes healed. His leprosy is completely healed. The Bible says that his skin was as soft as a child. And of course, Naaman comes back. He's so happy that he's healed. This time, Elijah actually comes out to say hello to him. And Naaman, Naaman is so grateful, and he is just over the moon about what just happened to him. And we're going to pick up the story in verses 17 and 19, because after he comes back and is healed, he asks Elijah for something really interesting. And a lot of people never really pay attention to this, but pay attention to what Naaman asks Elijah. He asks, asks him for something a little bit weird. And Elena is going to read us and pick up on this scripture and what Naaman asks Elijah. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So interesting here. This is where Naaman says, hey, Elisha, what can I do? What can I pay you? You want money? You want gold? What do you want? And Elisha says, no, none of that. Uh, I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff. You know, go in peace. Go home. You're healed. And what does Naaman ask Elisha? He asks him for something. He says, okay, if you're not willing to take any of the stuff I'm offering you, let me take something. And what does he ask for? He asks for dirt. He asks for dirt. Why dirt? Why in the world would he want dirt? He says, let me take earth. Let me take dirt as much as my mule train can carry. 
And Elisha says, sure, take as much as you want. And then Naaman, what does he say? He says, now I know that the God of Israel is the God of all gods, and I will sacrifice and worship to no other but Yahweh. Interesting how Naaman realizes that it's because of the God of Israel that he's healed. Surely he's gone and prayed to Ramon, which is the God that he prays to, and all these other different gods that he probably has in Syria, and he's never been healed. He comes to Israel, and the prophet of Yahweh, the prophet of God, tells him, go and dip yourself in the river, and you will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. And Naaman comes back, and he tells Elisha his only point of theology. He says, now I know that Yahweh is the God of all gods, and I will sacrifice and worship to no other but him. So fantastic how God uses the situation of this man to prove himself the God of all gods, the one true living God. And Naaman realizes this. And then he tells Elisha, Hey, Elijah, listen, man, I'm going to take all of this dirt back with me. But, you know, again, I'm a pretty big deal in Syria. I'm a general. And my master, the king, I have to go with him into the temple of Ramon. And the king is pretty old. So I have to go in with him. And because he's pretty old, I have to help him bow down to Ramon. So by the king holding on to me and me helping him bow down, I'm sort of bowing down myself. But I want God to know. I want Yahweh to know. I want the one true God to know that I'm not bowing down to Ramon any longer. I'm only doing what my duty is for my master, for my king. But I want God to know that I'm not bowing down to Ramon anymore. That now I know that Yahweh is the one true God and I will sacrifice and worship to no other but Him. This is a Syrian. This is a pagan. This is a guy who's grown up worshiping multiple gods, including the main one, which is Ramon. And because of an intervention by the one true God, he realizes that there is only one true God. There is the God of all gods, and his God, Ramon, is uh, something else. Is definitely not at the level of the God of Israel. And it's so cool to see this. And it's so cool to see God using this situation. And again, what does Naaman ask for? Dirt. Why dirt? Because he knows in his worldview, in Naaman's worldview, he knows that that, that Israel is God's territory. And what he wants to do is take some of God's territory and take it with him. He wants God's dirt, God's land in his home. I can imagine him going home and spreading this dirt all across his home. Showing God, I want to be in your turf, God. I'm going back to Syria where that nation is under the control and dominion of other gods. But if I take your territory, your sacred space with me and spread it, 
I can be right with you because I am in your land. I am in your territory. And that was the worldview of the ancient Near East. Everybody believed that everybody had their own God. And those gods had their own territory. And they did not go any, they did not come out of that territory. Everybody had their borders. Every God had their border. Except one. <laughs> the God of all gods. The God of Israel. The creator of everything. The creator of all the nations. The one who gave the nations their inheritance back in, in the Tower of Babel. And then put these rebel guys, at first they were not rebels, he put them as governors over the nations, and then they rebelled against him. And we also see an example of Turfor in another very famous story with Elijah and the, the incident at Mount Carmel. And this is really cool because we see and most of you know this story if you've grown up in church or, or know the Bible, you know that the people of Israel have fallen into idolatry, especially with Jezebel and Ahab leading the way. And they have fallen to worship Baal. And Elijah comes in and basically says, all right, we're going we're gonna to end this thing once and for all. And he says, you guys are either going to worship Baal or you're going to worship God. Choose. How long will you be torn between two opinions? He tells them. It's time to make a choice. And Elijah says, I'm going to prove it. And he challenges the priests of Baal. And he says, I challenge you guys. Let's go to Mount Carmel. Both of us will build an altar. And whichever God rains down fire from, from the sky is the one true God. Quite simple. I pray to my God, you pray to your God, and whoever shows up wins. That's basically it. And the priests of Baal take on the challenge. And what we know the story. They go to Mount Carmel. Elijah says, you guys go first. You know, I'm giving you guys a chance. And they began to praise and cry out and pray and give sacrifices. I mean, they do their whole nine-yard ritual. And Baal never shows up at all. And then after they do their show, what does Elijah do? He just says, bring the sacrifice, put a bunch of wood there. And what does he say? Pour water all over it. Drench it. Everything, the altar, the wood, the meat, drench it all. And then he just prays and he says, God, bring fire from the sky and consume this offering. And what does God do? Whoosh, brings down the fire and consumes everything, wet and all. And, he, and what do the people of Israel do? They bow down and remember, yes, we are God's allotted inheritance. He is the one true God. We need to worship Him. But here's the really interesting thing about this story that not a lot of people really pay attention to. Is why would the priests of Baal take on this challenge from Elijah if they weren't confident they would win? 
what insane person would say, we worship this wooden statue that has no power whatsoever, literally no power. It's just a figment of our imagination and it just sits there collecting dust. Why would they actually get, take on the challenge? If they know that Baal is just a statue that they made up in their imagination, why would they go through the hassle of potentially embarrassing themselves? Unless they truly believed that they could win. And here's what I posit. I posit that many, many times in the past, they had encounters with Baal. They would pray to Baal. They would sacrifice to Baal. And Baal would show up. This supernatural being would show up and do all kinds of things. Who knows what? You know, potentially show, pull some tricks, you know, show some kind of supernatural manifestation to these priests. I believe that's what was going on, what they were used to. Every single time they, were, they would go into Baal's temple. Every single time they would pray for, to him. Every single time they would bring sacrifices to him. A supernatural being would show up and manifest itself. Otherwise, what's the point of taking on the challenge? And if we really read the story, they're pretty darn confident that they're going to win. They truly believe that Baal is going to show up just like he, show, he has shown up in every other time they have prayed to him and worshipped to him and sacrificed to him. And he is going to prove that he is powerful and more powerful than the God that Elijah worships. But then they realize that Baal, interestingly enough, goes silent. And who shows up? the God of all gods, the one true God, the creator of everything, even the creator of Baal. And the priests are dumbfounded. Here's what I believed happened. Baal knew, or the supernatural being that was behind the name of Baal, knew God's going to come? I'm out. I'm gone. He created me. I'm not going to try to go up against him. There's no shot I'm going to win. If God, because God is the one true God, I relinquish because he is creator of all. And Baal not only did not show up, he had no intention of showing up because he knew that Yahweh would be there. The one true living God. The God of all gods. The Elohim of Elohim. So wonderful when you see it through this supernatural worldview of a story we've heard so, so many times. But this is another example of God showing in this turf war, I am who I am. I am that I am. There is none beside me. There are none before me. And what's interesting, too, is that we actually see this unfold in the New Testament. We see this in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation 
of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So this is Paul talking. And what does Paul do here? He quotes Deuteronomy 32 when he is preaching the gospel to a group to people that are used to worshiping multiple gods, to pagans. Why would Paul, who was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, quote Deuteronomy 32 to a bunch of pagans? Why? You know what Paul is saying to them? He's saying, hey dudes, I you believe that you worship multiple gods. And the reason you worship those multiple gods is because you those gods were assigned to you. Those gods were given to you a long, long time ago. I'm here to tell you that I share the same worldview as you do, but differently. And he quotes Deuteronomy 32 and he tells them, way back when, God at Babel set the borders of the nations. Where did that happen? When did God set the borders of the nations? When did he split the nations of mankind? At Babel. And Paul is telling these pagan pantheon-worshipping guys that the gods that they worship were assigned to them a long time ago, but not as their gods but as governors, as placeholders, until God can bring mankind back into his family. But they rebelled, and they turned their populations against God, and took the worship that should have gone back to God to themselves, to be worshipped as gods themselves, to take away God's worship and put it on themselves. And And Paul is telling them, Hey guys, I have great news. Jesus came. The Son of God came and died on the cross for all of our sins. And you no longer have to worship these guys anymore. They have no more authority. They have no more dominion. Now, come back to the family. God has made a way. If you remember the first lesson, the first week, What does God want? God wants a human family with him forever. And now God has made a way. And and Paul is telling these guys, come back to the family. Come back. God divorced you for a temporary time. But now he wants you back. Remember what Psalm 82 says. Arise, O God, and judge the earth. For you shall inherit all of the nations. That is starting to come true. That prophecy is being fulfilled when Paul is talking to these Greeks and these Assyrians and all of these people that he's meeting who are used to worshiping pantheons of gods. And it's no coincidence that Paul references Deuteronomy 32 as his foundation to prove to them that God wants them back. So fascinating. And it's interesting then what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five and 26. 
lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Paul is using the Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82, the Babel worldview, as the foundation for what he's saying here. He's basically saying, hey guys, there's going to be a temporary hardening over God's people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Because it's now going to be time for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Where God will inherit the nations back. And as God begins to inherit all of the nations back, Israel will then realize this, become jealous, and come back. And God will get his way again. What he started in Eden will continue. He wants a human family with him forever. And he has been inheriting the nations right back to him. These gods have been defeated. God constantly shows them up. And he proves each and every time in the examples we gave that he is the one true God. And there is none beside him and there are none before him. Fascinating. And then Luke 4, 25 and 27. And this is an interesting scripture and Elaine is going to read it here in a second. But Jesus, Jesus is talking here. And he uses two very, two examples, two primary examples of faith. And what's really interesting about God using these two examples of faith is two people that you probably would not think Jesus would use as primary examples of faith. And Elaine is going to read it for us. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is using Naaman and the widow of Zarephath as prime examples of ultimate faith in God. Why is he not using Moses or Noah or David or any other Israelite patriarch you can think of? Why does he use a pagan widow and a pagan general as prime examples of faith in the one true God. Why? Because what Jesus is trying to tell us is, listen up, guys. Naaman and the widow of Zarephath were both pagans. Their whole lives, they worshipped multiple gods. But they came to an understanding of this one truth, and this was their basic and only point of theology. That God, that Yahweh, is 
the God of all gods. Like Naaman said, now I know that Yahweh is the God of all gods and I will sacrifice and worship to no other. The widow of Zarephath, when she met Elijah, her duty was to turn him in to the guards so that he can be killed. Because he was a foreign prophet of a foreign god. And her duty as a pagan worshiper and her of her nation and her gods was to turn him in and have him killed. But she doesn't do that. Because she realizes that the god that he represents is the one true God, the creator of all. And Jesus is telling us, all you got to know is that I am the God of all gods. And this is connected to when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he's telling us, Naaman and the widow of Zarephath are prime examples of faith. You don't have to be a churchgoer. You don't have to be somebody who prays a thousand times a day. If you only have that one point of theology, that God is the God of all gods, and that you will worship and sacrifice to no other but Him, and then with Jesus, that you realize that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to the Father but through Him, that's all you need. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Sunday Unschooled. Be sure to subscribe, share, and if you ever have any questions, you can email us at sundayunschooled at gmail.com. We look forward to next week's episode.